You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Devin Lincoln. I'm an attorney in Lozano Smith's Monterey office, where I co-chair the firm's facilities and business practice group, and also run the client news brief program and the podcast program. On two of our podcasts this year, we explored the changing winds around charter schools in California and the proposed charter school legislation that had the potential to implement significant changes in charter school law. Well, now Governor Newsom has signed that legislation, although along the way, the bills were negotiated and revised in a number of ways. So today, we're going to recap the law as enacted and then talk briefly about what the changes mean for school districts and charter schools going forward. Joining me in this conversation today are two returning champions. First, for his third appearance on the podcast, please welcome back Ed Sklar. Ed is the managing partner of our Walnut Creek office and has co-chaired the charter school practice group since time immemorial. Once upon a time, I was his co-chair. Ed is recognized statewide as an expert in charter school law, particularly when it comes to the role and responsibilities of the charter school authorizer. He's spoken at numerous conferences for charter authorizers and elsewhere as well. So hello, Ed, and welcome back. Thanks. Happy to be here. Well, next, I'd like to welcome Megan Macy, making her second appearance on the podcast. Megan is the managing partner of our Sacramento office and a veteran practitioner of charter school law. In particular, Megan holds the distinction of having successfully argued the Anderson case in front of the Third District Court of Appeals. We'll have reason to touch on that case a little bit later. Megan also keeps herself busy practicing facilities and business and labor and employment law, so she, you know, has a few things on her plate. So, hi, Megan. Hi, Devin. Thanks for having me here today. Well, I want to get right to it, both of you. In a prior podcast, we discussed the fact that as of this spring, there were at that point four bills pending that each aimed at some kind of charter school reform in some way. In the end, though, we've ended up with two bills, AB 1505 and AB 1507. AB 1505 addresses charter petition approval and renewal. AB 1507 addresses where charter schools can locate. So, Ed, we're going to start at the top. Can you start by telling us how AB 1505 changes the law on charter petition approval? And and first, can you tell us when those provisions will go into effect and then what they will do when they go into effect? Sure. Thanks, Devin. So AB 1505 has a wide-ranging impact on the charter approval process, uh, including it gives new criteria for denial of a charter petition. It gives the new timing for school districts to review charter petitions. It gives new appeals following denials of or new appeals process for denials or following denials of the charter uh, uh, review process. All of these go into effect on July 1, 2020. So if you have a petition for renewal that is in front of you, in front of your board in the 2019-2020 school year, that uh, petition for renewal for this current school year is not going to be impacted by AB 1505. I just want folks to be in my, uh, mindful of that. Now, when we're talking about 
petition approval criteria uh, when districts are considering whether or not to grant or deny a charter petition, a school district is now allowed to consider and deny a charter charter petition based on um, whether the charter school is demonstrably unlikely to serve the interests of the entire community in which the school is proposing to locate. And also, for some school districts, um, a petition can be denied if the school district is not positioned to absorb the fiscal impact of the proposed charter school. Mm. So that's part of what has been added to the petition approval or denial process. Also, in regard to petitions, petition review timelines, school districts have always had 30 days to hold a public hearing and 60 days to take action on a charter petition, on an initial charter petition. Now school districts are given 60 days to hold a public hearing and 90 days to have a follow-up public hearing where the board is supposed to take action. Additionally, the governing board of a school district or a county board of education, when reviewing a charter petition, is now required to publish all staff recommendations and findings regarding a charter petition at least 15 days before the public hearing at which the board will take action on the charter petition. Mm. So about 75 days into the review process, the district is now obligated to basically publish its staff report or its proposed findings um, prior to the board taking action. Petitioners also need to be afforded equivalent time to present evidence and testimony to the governing board at the public hearing in which the petition is going to be approved or denied. So there's a a, a new process for board meetings where uh, districts are going to take action to approve or deny a charter petition. Okay, so we've got more time on both sides and more criteria on which school districts can deny petitions. Is that the, that the bare minimum summary? That's the basics. Yeah, okay. Okay. Okay, now can you talk about how AB 1505 changes the process of renewing charter petitions? Right. So the petition renewal process, charter petition renewal process, is far and away the most complex of the legislative reforms that have been made here. Yeah. I, I, and, and the best I, I want to do for purposes of this podcast is basically break it down to say that charter petition renewals are now going to be considered under a three-tiered system whereby authorizers must consider the academic performance of the charter school based on the state indicators included in the evaluation rubrics, i.e. the dashboard. Mm -hmm. Under the tiered system uh, or this three-tier system, what we internally at the firm are calling a a high-performing charter school may be renewed for five to seven years. If you recall, under the current law, a charter school could be renewed for no more than five years. Now it's one that is high high performing, can be renewed for five to seven years. Mm-hmm. An average performing charter school may be renewed for five years. And a low performing charter school, generally one that is not performing academically based on the uh, state dashboard, it may not be renewed. Uh, however, under certain conditions, a low performing charter school can be renewed if certain findings are made. It can be renewed for a two-year period. Interesting. Okay. There were also amendments that have been made under 1505 to the appeal process 
Um, the new law modifies the appeal process for denials of a new charter petition or of a, of a renewal of a charter petition. It, it impacts the appeals that have gone to state, that go to county boards and the state board in a variety of ways. For example, a petition submitted on appeal to a county board of education or to the state board of education containing any, quote, new or different material terms, end quote, will be immediately remanded back for a reconsideration to the district that originally denied the charter petition, and the, uh, the school district needs to take action within 30 days of um, that remand. Hmm. Additionally, uh, districts and county boards of education are required to prepare and submit an administrative record to the State Board of Education um, if it is appealed to the State Board of Education. The State Board may only reverse the denial of a petition or the renewal of a petition if there is uh, a finding that there was an abuse of discretion. So it should limit the base or it limits the bases upon which a State Board of Education can overturn the denial of an appeal. And if a petition is approved on appeal to the state board, either the district governing board or the county board of education will be designated as the authorizing authority. That is up to the state board of education to determine with consultation by the charter school itself. So the charter school is going to have a say as to who their authorizer is going to be. One of the big things coming out of this is that the state board of education is effectively getting out of the charter authorizer business. So the the State Board of Education will no longer be a charter school authorizer. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. I just want to review a little bit of it. So you said when it comes to high performing, so-called or average performing, those aren't terms you actually use in the legislation, right? The actual criteria is based on performance under the evaluation rubrics of the State Board of Education, right? That's correct. Okay, but for ease of ease of reference, we and perhaps others are going to be using high performing and average, et cetera. Right, high performing, average performing, low performing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, and then when it comes to a petition submitted on appeal to the county board or the state board, we, we don't have a definition yet of what newer material terms are, do we? No, that has not been defined yet. Okay, great. So there's a lot there. Can I ask you both then maybe to comment on, and maybe we'll ask Megan to go first, how significant all of these changes that I just went through are? How might these new rules regarding approval and renewal of charter school petitions, how, how can they possibly, how might they possibly change the landscape for charters and their authorizers? Megan, you want to start? Sure. So 1505 is really a tectonic shift in the way that the authorizer um, charter school relationship is. And what I think that the legislature was trying to accomplish was to get at a lot of different challenging issues that have evolved since the inception of the Charter Schools Act and the evolution of case law that uh, has gone along with that and trying to address in one fell swoop the reality of the fiscal impacts that charter schools have on school districts, some case law around in the renewal context, how do we treat academic performance of the charter school, and um, just the impact that uh, you know the charter schools have on authorizers. And then kind of in the, the swing of that, what we saw at the last, kind of the last minute as the bill was evolving was you know, the charter school lobbying effort 
to push back against some of the really significant changes and have a more measured approach in the uh, appeals process. And so what we what we walked away with was this bill that has a lot of this tech, the technical requirements that Ed was just talking about, but still getting at some of these really big picture, significant um, things that have evolved over time. So when I think about the bill overall, I think that there are a lot of good changes in there, but also a lot of challenges that are presented to authorizers mm. in how to implement. And the other thing for authorizers to be thinking about is how how is this all going to circle back in their oversight responsibilities as they're not only authorizing but providing oversight to the charter schools and how does that dovetail into the renewal process? So there's just going to be a lot of learning for everyone and it's interesting times. <laughs> yeah, it seems to me whether you have a petition, whether you have an existing charter school, you have a really stable charter situation, inevitably you're going to have to contend with this bill um, when it comes time for renewal. So everybody except those districts who don't yet have a charter will be potentially impacted by this uh, legislation. Ed, what are your thoughts? I think uh, two things that M- Megan was was referring to, I just, just I keep thinking about when we're talking about the charter legislative reform. One is the debate that has changed that this legislation, the debate about charter schools in California that this legislation was supposed to address, which it may have, I think, it kind of sort of did, which is there. we used to talk about the debate about charter schools was how are charter schools performing academically as opposed to traditional school districts. And then I think with all of the legislative and political changes in this state, the question is now, what are the impacts that charter schools are having on traditional school districts in performing their mission of education? And so we're looking at Exactly what Megan said is how how are the charters impacting the school districts, traditional school districts, and can is there some legislation that can be passed that will affect that? The other thing is as part of the legislative nego- uh, negotiations in passing this these laws, there was a lot more due process that was put into the statute so that while they were trying to cut down on the appeals to the state board and the and the, to the county boards, uh, a lot more due process has been put into those into the appeals process for, in, on behalf of charter schools. Same with petitions for renewal. Um, you see a lot of due process built into that process, and and also in regard to just the review of an initial petition. So everything that they've sort of tried to protect the school districts with. They've doubled up on the due process due to charter schools. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, now let's talk about one other um, change to the landscape that AB 1505 also brings about. AB 1505 also will have a significant impact specifically on non-classroom-based charter schools. Can you talk about that aspect, Ed? Yeah. So... The new law creates a two-year moratorium on the approval of a petition for the establishment of a new charter school that offers non-classroom-based ex- uh, instruction. So effective January 1, 2020, through January 1, 2022, no new non-classroom-based charter petitions um, may be approved. There are some exceptions to that, uh, such as charter schools that are now located in one school district and want to become got into geographic compliance with the new laws that Megan's going to talk about, that they are allowed to 
start up their charter with a new charter authorizer, those non-classroom-based programs will be around or can, can switch authorizers, so to speak. But um, overall, while there's going to be a two-year moratorium on new non-classroom-based charter schools. There are supposed to be none of these schools are going to be um, created over the next two years while the state is studying the impacts and the effectiveness of non-classroom-based charter schools. Okay, but just to be clear, if one of these schools comes up for renew, an existing school comes up for renewal in that two-year time, they'll be subject to the renewal requirements we've already reviewed, but they, they would have the opportunity to be renewed. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Okay. Well, from there, I want to pivot to discussing the other bill, which is AB 1507, since it too also has to do with the operations of non-classroom-based schools. So Megan, can you summarize the two major impacts of this bill? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think your last question was really important, Devin, uh, in that when we're talking about renewals of existing non-classroom-based charter schools, that it's not impacted by the moratorium. And the theme with AB 1507 is that existing programs that are lawfully uh, operating right now are not going to be disrupted or impacted by the new changes in terms of the location requirements, which is what 1507 is about. So that's a common strand and a common theme. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a nutshell, and without getting into contortions, because reading 1507 can can put you there, um, the bill really does two things. One is that it eliminates what has been commonly referred to as the out-of-county location exception, and that's in uh, 47605.1. There's currently a provision in the Ed Code that allows for the location of a resource center in an adjacent county, and that uh, exception is going away beginning January 1 of 2020. It also eliminates what's been commonly known as the real estate exception under 47605.1D of the Education Code. And that is the section that talks about if you're unable to locate within your authorizing school district's boundaries that you may operate one site, whether it's classroom-based or non-classroom-based, outside of the uh, jurisdiction of the authorizing school district. That exception is going away. So those are the two big things with 1507 is the adjacent county exception and the real estate ex- exception are going away. There are a number of grandfathering provisions, however, that allow charter schools that are lawfully locating right now under one of those exceptions to continue to operate until their renewal. And I'm oversimplifying this a bit, so I want to give that caveat. There is also a path for charter schools that are located outside their authorizing districts, if they get permission from their from the, the school district in which they're located to continue operating and to renew under their current authorizer, they, they may have a path forward even at renewal to continue in their current location. It is a lot more convoluted and complicated than that. And one of the tools that we're working on putting together as a resource to our clients is a flowchart that explains all of this very clearly. So stay tuned for that. Okay. Yeah, that that's helpful. That's great. Thank you. Um, just so we I mentioned earlier the Anderson case, Megan, and 
this how does this new bill if at all get at the holding in Anderson or does the holding in Anderson remain undisturbed well I think at its core it remains undisturbed which is that the charter schools act requires that charter schools denote in their charter petition and identify where their facility is that you know a site or a facility um, for for a charter school, whether it's classroom-based or non-classroom-based, must exist, and you must identify it in your charter petition. And it really, I think, draws... I think the purpose of some of this legislation is to clean up some of the question marks or inconsistencies that apparently existed and led to the the Anderson case itself, um, because there was a difference of opinion on how the statute should be interpreted. And I think there's some attempt in this legislation to clean some some of that uncertainty up. But I'm not sure it really disturbs the holding in the case, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, the statute should really be read on its face. Okay. Okay. And we've talked about Anderson in prior podcasts, but that's interesting when you look at this new legislation. Okay. So another question for you, Megan, taken together with the moratorium on new non-classroom-based charters, what do you think the that these changes in 1507 might mean for those schools? So I'm not sure there's really an immediate impact for any school that is lawfully was lawfully located under the current scheme. What I do think is that we're going to pause for a couple of years on new non-classroom based charters to to learn and study them more. And that's the purpose of the moratorium, as I understand it. And during that period of time, there's also going to be this opportunity with the grandfathering and the adjustments that need to be made for these programs that are already in existence to continue operating, but to also move into locations that are more appropriate given who their authorizing districts are. Okay. So I guess in summary, it's a, it's a very little right now, but an opportunity to make adjustments that are more consistent with the original intent of the law. And certainly we might see further legislation coming forward in the next two years. Yeah, I think it's it's quite possible. So, Ed, what do we know about the process that got us here? We've talked about, as I already mentioned, this legislation moving forward starting, um, we started talking about this earlier in the year, I think around February, had a conversation in the spring. And then over the summer, as I understood it, there was some pretty intense activity, intense negotiation on the part of both charter school proponents and critics. So, and the governor, of course, governor's office. So how did this resolution come about? What do we know about that? Uh, I think there were a few things at play here. Right out of the gate um, with the governor taking office, you know, elections have consequences. And so we had a new governor and a new superintendent of public instruction who had both basically throughout their campaigns promised to bring about charter school reform. Right out of the gate, the legislation, folks who were, let's just say, not necessarily part of legislators who were not part of the charter school community or were not necessarily allies of the charter school community, um, they were or they were proposing some very aggressive legislation. You know, at some point there was legislation out there that I think we had talked about in an earlier podcast that had really a strict limit on capping the number of charter schools in the state. Right. Well, I mean, at that point, and this was back in February, March, at that point, the 
charter school community and uh, folks who advocate for the charter school community, i.e. the California Charter Schools Association, they sat up and took notice and they were able to have the legislature, you know, reach a, reach a compromise that was that was this compromise legislation that we have now, which basically did put in all of these protections that I, that I was talking about before, the due process protections for charter schools when they're on appeal or when they're, you know, going to be renewed. And they basically sat at the table or had a voice at the table in regard to restructuring what was some very aggressive legislation, I'd say anti-charter school legislation that started at the beginning of the legislative session. I think also what helped um, was the fact that the governor and superintendent of public instruction had created this uh, statewide charter school task force, which had a lot of had players from the or, or advocates for charter schools, advocates for school districts who were forming this task force, who basically reached agreement in regard to the concerns that that a high density of charter schools in the state had on district operation of its own schools. And so the charter school task force came forward with pro-charter and those who wanted to regulate charter with providing one voice to say, hey, there are some things, some restrictions we do need to put on charter schools here. Hence, some of um, the compromise in the legislation sort of had the way paved through this, I think, this task force. Interesting. Okay, that's all really helpful. Thank you. So now that these bills are law, how should charter authorizers put them put these these new laws into play? How would you advise a charter authorizer assess new or renewal petitions, whether for classroom or non-classroom based programs? Megan, I'm going to throw this to you. What tools are there for authorizers to adjust to this new world? So this is all going to be a learning process. You know, we've been, charter authorizers have been conducting uh, initial petition reviews and renewals in a particular way since the inception of the Charter Schools Act. And now we have a new set of rules. And so it's going to take a little bit of time to get used to those new rules and to make sure that uh, mechanically everything's going according to plan and what the statute requires. I understand that CDE will be issuing some guidance around some of the changes in the law under uh, 1505 in particular, and that should be that should be helpful from a consistency standpoint and statewide basis. And as we've been trying to unravel this and and provide guidance to clients, we've also been developing a toolkit with some frequently asked questions some flowcharts that delve into you know, the location requirements, the different timelines. And all of that is going to be um, going out and being available to our clients in the next week or so. And so we're really excited about that. And I think there'll be a lot of useful resources in that information as uh, authorizers are trying to unravel how to move forward. Um, the other, uh, the other, tool that I would offer out there is that uh, Lozano Smith is going to be putting together a charter symposium where authorizers can get together in the room together and talk through some of these changes to figure out, you know, what are the best practices and, and how, how can uh, authorizers help each other in this learning process. So we're excited about all of that and anxious to kind of see what's to come. That's great. That's great. Do we have a, a time frame for the symposium? So the first 
symposium will be uh, next week in Sacramento, and we're going to be looking at uh, additional locations potentially uh, in the Northern California region and possibly Central Valley. Okay, and information on all of that will be in our show notes as well. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you both for everything here. And I'm going to give you the last word. You know that I like to ask big picture questions at the end of a podcast. Do you think that this legislation has resolved the conversation around the role of charter schools in California, at least for now? Has it gone far enough to address the issues that we've been discussing on prior podcasts, such as the impacts on traditional schools? I think I've heard some things that might say not quite, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the answer is no, it hasn't. I think that there is a better balance of things through this legislation. But as I think all three of us have been alluding to throughout the course of this podcast, the short answer is let's talk in four years and let's see what the impact has been on this legislation. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of there, there's still a lot of things that are not addressed in this legislation. And by the way, I just want to say that 1505 and uh, 1505 in particular talks about issues that we don't even have time to cover in this podcast. It, talk, it gets talks about certain issues in regard to teacher credentialing at charter schools. Right. It mm-hmm. um, you know talks about uh, differential differentiated assistance and technical supports that are now going to be provided to charters by the county offices of education. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff that is at play here. The other thing I was going to say is there's some stuff that the charter schools that this, this charter school legislation doesn't even touch, though, like revocation. It's still, rightfully or wrongfully, very difficult, expensive, and time-consuming to revoke a charter that's gone awry and that a, a school district wants sure. to revoke. Yeah. And there's also no legislation. I, I spend a lot of my time dealing with or helping school districts and county offices of education that are dealing with charter schools that have already been closed, those that have already been revoked mm. or those that have already voluntarily closed. And the charter school just disappears. And all the obligations that fall onto charter authorizers when that charter school goes out of business. Um, And so, uh, you know, if there was some legislation that would give some leverage to school districts and county boards of education that are helping to clean up what happens when a charter school goes out of business, that would be a great legislative feat to see. Sure, yeah, okay. All right. Well, thank you, Ed. And thank you both for all of this insight. This has been um, really, really interesting to me. And it's going to be an interesting time to practice charter school law as we see how all this unfolds for our clients. So thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Devin. Okay. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com slash podcast to find links and additional details and some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, everybody. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.